There are three fascinating parshiot that fall in a row during this time of the summer in the book of Numbers, and they are Chukat, Balak, and Pinchas. And as I've been on sabbatical for the last five months, I've had a great deal of time to study Torah, which has been fascinating to do what we call Torah Lishma, Torah for its own sake, which is a big mitzvah, um, instead of as a means for uh, a salary. So I've been given a great gift by the congregation to take some time to study and to write. And so I focused a lot of time in the last uh, three weeks on these three portions, and I wanted to take three of what I think are the themes that bring them together and teach a little bit about them tonight. So the portion of Kukat from a week ago involves something um, I think that's very poignant, which is the death of Miriam. And it says in the book of Numbers, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there, which is very, very different than what happens when her brother Aaron dies and her brother Moses dies. Because there was no water for the community immediately after Miriam's death, but there was also no time for mourning. And the people were very upset and I would say fearful because Miriam, her greatest talent and gift to the people of Israel was that she was a water diviner, which is very important when you're in the middle of the desert or the wilderness. So when she dies, Miriam's well dries up And the moment after she dies, the people are complaining and quarreling with Moses and Aaron. And Moses goes to God, and God tells Moses to take a rod and go to a specific place and speak to a rock, and then it will bring forth water. And at that point, it's a very famous story where Moses is so angry and really uncertain, doesn't say in the Torah, as it usually doesn't say in the Torah, what he's so mad about. It seems he's angry because the people keep quarreling and keep rising up against him. And so instead of speaking to the rock, what does he do? He smacks the rock twice and water comes out. That's one of the most poignant stories in Hukat. And then we move on to the story of the talking donkey. Now, this is not a political speech about the donkey and the elephant, I promise you. Um, but this, the Torah portion of Balak focuses on uh, a talking donkey and the story of Balak, the king of uh, Moab in Balaam, um, a foreign prophet. And we learned that Israel had become very numerous, which made the Midianites and the Moabites very nervous. So Balak wanted to wage war against them, but needed kind of a go-ahead before engaging them. And so he sought out Balaam to curse the Israelites because he knew that whoever Balaam would curse would be cursed, and whoever Balaam blessed would be blessed. And unfortunately, when Balak sent for Balaam, he actually didn't get the prophecy that he asked for. Instead of getting a curse on the people of Israel, Balaam wound up saying, Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, Mishkinotecha Yisrael, which are actually one of the first words of blessing that we say on our community every morning when we open up our prayers. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, your community, Israel, is what he said to them. And then finally, in the portion of Pinchas, which is this coming week, it's a very fascinating story of five daughters of Zilafachad. And it is the story of a man who has no sons, only five daughters, and it gives legitimization to um, a limited right of Israelite women for the first time to inherit property, to inherit land. Up to this point in the book of Numbers, only sons could inherit from their father. And in many ways, it celebrates women's boldness because his five daughters... Um, are part of a generation where they, women, women basically had no rights in the desert. They were considered almost at the level of property or land. And he, his daughters belong to this group that is about to enter the land of Israel and are demanding something new, new rights for people as they get there. 
And according to God's decree, the promised land is going to be appointed according to the number of names of this second generation in, um, that was recorded in the census in Numbers 26. And since only men were counted in the census, Zalafchad's daughters would be left with no inheritance and their land would be split up. And so they appeal this regulation and they come to the sacred tent in front of Moses and the elders and Eliezer the priest. And indeed, they're standing in front of the whole community, the five sisters, and they argue that their father's name wouldn't be cut off from his clan and from his lineage if they were allowed to inherit the property and the land. And so Moses consults with God, and miraculously, God comes out in favor of the five daughters and says, from this point on, if a man, if an Israelite does not have any sons, women can inherit property. Which, I mean, if you're sitting here thinking, well, big deal, it was a very big deal. It was the first time that it's recorded that women could own anything ancestrally. So those are the three portions that uh, line up. And I think that these three themes from the portions play a very important role um, in our recent past. During my sabbatical in February, I had the opportunity to participate in a very strange form of civil disobedience in Jerusalem. And as many of you know, extreme elements of the ultra-Orthodox communities have been forcing gender segregation in buses. Have any of you heard of this? That if you go to specific areas in Jerusalem and other cities um, and you get onto the bus, all the women are sitting in the back and the men are sitting in the front. It's a very strange feeling. And there's an organization in Israel um, that we are always in partnership with, Anat Hoffman's um, Israel Religious Action Center, that has sponsored uh, these rides called the Freedom Rides that are based on the idea from the civil rights movement in 1961 of desegregating buses and advocating for people who didn't have rights. And um, in this case, educating Orthodox men and women um, that gender segregation is actually illegal. Now, it wasn't illegal until this past year when the Supreme Court um, heard a case from Anat Hoffman, from the Israel Religious Action Center, saying that it should be not constitutional in Israel, even though there's no constitution, but it should not be legal to segregate the buses and that every single Egged bus should have a sign on it that says um, gender segregation is illegal. So on every single Egged bus now, which is the national bus company, there are signs in Hebrew that says gender segregation is illegal. But when you go into the religious neighborhoods, um, as many of us know, the, the weight of Jewish law versus Jewish custom sometimes gets blurry. So the custom is that the women get in the middle of the bus, like if you ever ride Muni, you can get in the middle of the bus and go to the back of the bus. That's what they do. The Freedom Rides take American Jews, liberal women and men, and they take a, we, take, we took a taxi all the way out to Ramot, which is very, very far out in, um, in an outer neighborhood in Jerusalem. We rode the bus line, the remote bus line, into Mea Shirim, which is a pretty orthodox neighborhood, not like San Francisco. So I'm sitting at the front of the bus with all men in black hats and black coats, and they're glaring at us. Uh, because they know exactly what we're doing. And the women keep getting on the bus, and the ones who dare to get at the front of the bus, they walk right by us to the back of the bus. And it was very disconcerting, because when we got off of this, you know, it was about a 45-minute ride, about making this statement, I thought to myself, what's it going to feel like to get off the bus in Meishirim? And it didn't feel very good to get off the bus in Meishirim. It, it, you know, I use the word strange. It, it reminded me of what it felt like um, earlier in my rabbinical training when I was standing at the wall and they were reading Torah on the other side and women weren't allowed to read Torah at the wall. We still aren't. Um, 
So, but I did feel very empowered to be able to do that kind of civil disobedience and to help um, Anat Hoffman in this cause of creating not just religious pluralism, but hopefully um, gender pluralism and, um, and rights. So I, I did wonder when I was walking through Mayashrim as I was looking at these women, if any of them had even heard of Zilafahad's story of, of his daughters, if that was something that was taught to them. Um, then, this May, there was a major victory for Israeli women and Jews and non-Orthodox rabbis in Israel. The Attorney General released his consent to recognize one of my colleagues, Rabbi Miri Gold, who's actually um, been here before and talked to us. She's recognized as the first rabbi of a non-Orthodox congregation in the history of Israel. That's a big deal. Now, we're coming up to, next year, the 40th anniversary of women being ordained as rabbis. And often people say to me, well, how long you know, have women been able to be rabbis? I'm Catholic, and I know nuns will never be able to become priests. And has it been a long time? I said, yeah, it's been like my whole life. And then I think, wait, it's been 40 years, and our history is 4,000 years? Well, it's only been 40 years. So um, if you aren't aware, I mean, I can do weddings here. Reform rabbis can do weddings here. They can bury people. They can do bar and bat mitzvah. We can do conversions. We can do namings. But when we go to Israel, if you're not an Orthodox rabbi, you cannot perform a wedding. So when a couple asks me if I'll come to Israel and marry them, I can't. So this was a very big deal for liberal Judaism in Israel. Um, she now has, for the first time, officially the title rabbi, the first non-Orthodox rabbi. Now, finally, my experience um, in Israel circled back to Chukat, to the moment when Moses prevented um, from mourning, and he has to go and get water for the people. Um, when Moses and Aaron die, in the Torah, the people stop, they wail, they grieve, and they have 30 days where everything grinds to a halt. They don't go on in their journey. They mourn for this beloved leader. But what happens um, to Moses when God not only prevents him from mourning and says, Miriam dies, she's buried, and then the water dries up, and he has to find water. Um, so Moses is not allowed 30 days. He's not allowed one minute of mourning for his sister. And almost to add insult to injury, God says, your sister used to be the water diviner. Now you do her job. She's dead. So that's what I think made Moses so angry. Because he didn't get the chance to be sad. And a lot of times when you're sad and you don't feel comfortable expressing sadness or grief or mourning, you get angry. And when Moses strikes the rock twice and water comes out, I think that anger comes from the place of actually God not giving the space for 30 days of mourning, or even a moment for, for Miriam. Now, when I got to Israel in February, um, I found out that this is actually happening again. And imagine not being able to lament in public the loss of somebody in your family, and being forced instead to watch the funeral from far away. That's what the Orthodox are doing to women in Israel. Um, for some women in Israel, this has been the case as burial societies force grieving women to stand apart from male family members. And when I arrived there in February, a colleague of mine had a congregant who actually um, had her eulogy for her father taken away from her. She was not able to publicly eulogize him. And 
Last week, uh, Anat Hoffman's organization won a significant victory against this phenomenon in the courts. Um, and there was an Israeli woman who was the woman who first was denied the ability to give the eulogy for her father. And um, she went, with the help of Anat's organization, to appeal in small claims court. And she spoke about this injustice done to her and to many women. And not only did the judge completely rule in Rosie's favor, but he also condemned this segregation across Israel, and he awarded the maximum amount in monetary compensation to her, and basically said any rabbi who abuses his position to exclude women from their ability to mourn a loved one has another judgment waiting for him in the Israeli courts. So in some ways, the fact that there's no separation of church and state is not a good thing, and in other ways, it is in Israel. Um, Segregating families at a funeral is something that almost defies our imagination, but I think it's a symptom of a much larger problem that's going on in Israel. Um, as long as the managing of all religious affairs is in, is in the hands of the Orthodox, uh, Israel is going to have to have a machloket, which is a terrible disagreement from within between liberal Jews and Orthodox Jews. The one good thing that I was made aware of this week is that for the first time Um, internationally, women's organizations, Jewish women's organizations, have come together, 14 of them from the United States and from Israel, that have come together, and instead of individually funding um, feminist organizations in Israel, they're coming together to fund them all at one time. So there's a $250,000 grant for um, women's rights for the first time um, that's been given internationally. Um, So that was something that gave me a little bit of hope. So I think it's then easy to circle back to the talking donkey. I can do it. I went to rabbinical school for five years. I can get us back. So all of the activism around the struggle for gender and religious pluralism in Israel, I think, it doesn't come from out in left field. It comes from very much um, our idealism and the values inside of our tradition. And actually, it's an essential part of the tradition that comes back to the Book of Numbers to Zalafachad's daughters, who for the first time pushed the envelope. Um, But at its core, the portion of Balak is about the impossible becoming real. And I don't just mean it in kind of like the Shrek or Dr. Doolittle, like an animal talking and coming to life, but in our world today it might seem impossible to believe or dream of a time when there's going to be equality in Israel for all Jews, for men and women, or for the Palestinians and the Israelis. And some would say that the Jewish people are the eternally foolish people. Um, to keep believing, but I would say that we're the eternally hopeful people and that inside of our sacred tradition is the mandate for justice, for justice there and for justice here. So when King Balaam orders the prophet Balak to curse the people of Israel, instead of the curse that comes out miraculously is a blessing. And I think you should take this talking donkey of Balak and Balaam's very seriously, who makes the impossible possible in our world. And think about the fact that every single day in Israel, there are things that we can be working on if we're less ignorant and more aware of what we can do. And I also will remind you that November is only a few short months away. And there is a talking donkey. Um, And there are elephants that speak. And it's our responsibility, because we don't live there we live here as American Jews to take democracy in our hearts and do what we can to make sure that this country is not just a country with liberty and justice for some, but with liberty and justice for all. Amen.